There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to The Mentor. I'm Mark Boris. If you had to move your family from a little place in Adelaide, yep, right here in Australia, to the States, United States, for your business, the question is, would you? Well, Matt Parry, the founder of the Good Crisp Company, moved his three daughters and wife out of the city of churches to the western US state of Colorado. His chips are a healthier version of, let's call it, Pringles. And Americans are going insane for this product. But interestingly, I haven't come across the product here at home. So this is a great example of two very different markets. And believe me, I know my chips because I'm a chip eater. Matt delves straight into his experience with trying to crack into our supermarkets and why he decided to take a leap of faith and bring an Aussie brand to the United States. So let's get into it. Matt Barry, welcome back home. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Where you been? I've been growing my business, The Good Chris Company. We've moved over there, my wife and our three young daughters, over to the US uh, almost four years ago now to, to focus on the business. Potato crisps? Yep. As they call them in America. Well, I don't know where they actually call them crisps, but we know what they are anyway. Yeah. The chips, chips here yep. in Australia. Is your market American market or anywhere else? We, so we sell here in Australia. We started the business in Australia, um, but we just got more and more traction in, in the US. We made the decision that if we're serious about this, the, you know, the US market is really where we're seeing the growth. So that, that's been our core. 90% of our sales are now so from the US. You started off in Australia? Yep, that's H- it. How long ago? Uh, 10 years ago. Oh, wow. You started 10 years ago. That's it. Why did you decide to go to the States? Really, for me, it was around, we struggled a little bit, to be frank, to get traction here in Australia. We were, we got into a few IGAs, we got into Woolies, but really I knew the US market was a big opportunity for what we wanted to do. I did a little bit in the US before, so I knew it a little bit. But once we started selling there, it just really started to take off. And the size of the market, the opportunity just started to, to really make sense. Well, the size makes sense because you've got 360 million, whatever yep. it is over there. But, um, but do they more... Chips, I mean, what's the deal? They, yeah, so that's definitely it. So size is one. They, they love snacks, so they eat a lot more snacks. Yeah. And for me, I play in like the better for you space. We have better for you snacks. They have a really big industry, whole retailers like Whole Foods and things like that that don't sell bad products, only sell better for you. So it's a lot more friendly to, to get a foothold in the market yeah. as well. It says all taste, no guilt. Yep. What's no guilt mean? Yeah, for us, it's about how do you feel better about the snacks that you're eating? So our product, we're still a snack food. We still taste good. That's our most important thing. The next thing is how do I clean up the ingredients? So no artificial colors and flavors, no MSG. We take all of the chemicals out, non-GMO, gluten-free, but really still make it taste good. Uh, gluten-free, uh, but they're made of potatoes. Potatoes got no gluten you, in it. You would think so. Uh, so Pringles and other people, in the way that our product is made, it's almost made like a dough. So you can put fillers 
in rice, flour, wheat, stuff like that. Anything oh, right. other than potatoes. So like Pringles, other competitors have have potato flour or sorry, have flour in the product. Well, yours is just straight potato. potato. Yeah, potato. Potato's got no gluten. Is that right? That's correct. Oh, okay, yep. I didn't know that. Yep. Okay, so um, I guess you've got to have put some sort of um, preservative in there. No, but you will use a bit of salt in there for that. But and really, so it's about. Let's make it, we put more potato in so it's thicker, crunchier, tastes better, and then we just take all the crap Fuck out of it. Fuck, I could have a look at this. Yeah. So my only experience with um, these form yep. crisps, the Pringles one, yep. by the way, is always in hotels. Yep. Hotel, I don't ever see them anywhere else, but I, I see them in hotels all the time. Uh, Pringles is huge. Like So in the US alone, they're the number three potato chip brand. They're $2 billion in sales alone, and there's just no one else out there they're doing it. So that was sort of the idea for it um, is one is there's, there needs some competition. You mean the style of potato That's crisp. That style. Well, just Pringles alone is $2 billion in sales in the US and, and no one else really doing it. So how do I come up with something that's better for you moving towards where macro consumers are going, more of those trends? Who are the buyers of this style of? Yep. So it does vary a little bit. In the US particularly, it's uh, more younger kids, so age 5 to 10, and then they might age up into Doritos or things like that. Here in the US, it's you know college kids, teenagers, those sort of things are usually larger consumers of it. Um, but they're incredible, incredible, that format is incredibly popular. I mean, Pringles is 50 years old and it's still you know number two, number three brand. Is that right? Yeah. And we've got a box of Pringles here. I should probably do the t- taste test. So there we go. Well... I'm a potato chip uh, connoisseur, by the way. So I would say not too much salt, which is good, mm-hmm. but enough salt. Yep. You're right, they are thicker than the uh, Pringles. It seems like they're bigger too. Yeah. This one's even broken, but it's still bigger. I can't taste all the shit that gets normally put in these things, but I just like the idea that it's yep. not in there. I'm taking your word for it, by the way. Well, you can't get away with shit like that anyway. So I'm going to now put one of the Pringles in there. It's also got a good crunch in it, but it's not better than yours. Mm. I, I get a bit of a a doughy taste from mm. the uh, aftertaste from from the Pringles chip. Yeah, a little bit floury, mm-hmm. whereas yours not. If you compare the size of their ingredients to ours, we have like five or six ingredients in there versus sort of. So, so yeah, a kid can fit his hand in yours too. Yeah, you know, here it's a bit more difficult. The Pringles yeah. uh, pack is a bit small, and the funny thing about it is about the Pringles pack too. One of the things I've always noticed is that the Pringles never touch the edge, whereas yours are touching the edge. Yeah. I'm not getting cheated. <laughs> yeah, that's like, right. uh, I feel like so, um, the Pringle guys have always uh, taken, give, t- taken the piss out of me in that regard. Now, in terms of um, your uh, design and yep. uh, you know, how, how it looks on the front and the back, um, so you not that much different except yours just looks a bit more friendly. So. It's pretty cool, uh, and I like the yellow. That, that looks like very Australian to me, but yeah. anyway. And, and here on our latest packaging, we talk more about my family and you know, allergen-free and those things and sort of make that differentiation between, hey, we're not just sort of some big conglomerate, but you're buying it from a person and things like that as well. So it says, g'day, Matt here. <laughs> I wanted to make something I felt good about giving my kid to my kids, so I created these guilt-free crisps. We moved from Australia to share these with you. Enjoy, Matt. That's pretty cool. And there's a photograph for you and your family. You've got yeah. missus and three kids. That's it, three daughters. Yeah, yeah. So, by the way, do you have to ask your kids permission or whatever to put their photo on that? <laughs> I, I mean, you don't have to. And I think I did. I mean, it's, it's, and they've grown up with it. It's a family business. They're part of it. And I kind of like involving them in those yeah. decisions and seeing that as well. So, yeah. yeah and uh, it's, it says on the back gluten free, soy free, nut free, dairy free, non GMO. And then you've got cheese balls too. We do, yeah. So you yep. use this as an opportunity to advertise other stuff. Correct. How does your nutrition information line up with uh, 
Pringles. It's slightly better, but it's similar. And that comes so, back to our point around taste is the most important. So as soon as you start mucking around too much with salt and fat and things like that, you lose taste. So we yeah, just yeah. take all the nasty stuff out is yeah. how we focus on Well, what's interesting about that is that's just right. So taste is uh, salt and fat and sugar yep. basically. And then, of course, it sends up a little signal to the brain. The brain goes, dopamine, mum <laughs> happy, reward, and they'll eat more. Yep. And then I get sort of addicted to them. So you're not going to be able to do much about that. Mm-hmm. Because that is the whole premise of snack foods. Yeah, that's why we snack. We yeah. want to enjoy it and, yeah, and get that correct. enjoyment. Yeah, and you have that with a beer or you're watching the footy during the you know, state of origin in Australia or whatever it is at Super Bowl in the US. Um, and or you give it to your kids because you're staying in a hotel and you yeah. want to go out for dinner with your missus and uh, you want them to do room service so you go and raid the fridge yeah. and you give them some of this. Or you might have gone down the supermarket before you did that because it would be much cheaper. Yeah. You can't really uh, compromise on taste. Mm-hmm. That, that's a big deal. And you can't make chips, I don't reckon, you can't make them healthy. Yep. Because, fuck, you know, they're chips. Yep. Don't eat them. If you want to be healthy, don't eat them at all because mm-hmm. there's a lot of carbo in there. Yep. And that's it. And the salt, whether you put more salt or less salt, doesn't really make a difference. Salt will retain water and make it look like shit. Yeah. So you made the decision to have a snack food, take it, bumps and all. Mm-hmm. Yep. You might do it once a week or once a month or wherever it is. And the kids can always get away with this sort of stuff a lot more often than we can. But so is that how you sort of approached it? 100%. Like, especially for me, when my daughters were born, you know, you probably remember what it's like, mate. Your kids are forever snacking. You're always, and you can give them an apple or banana, but that's, that's what about the 10th time, 20th time they're asking? So you don't want everything to be a fight. So I wanted to develop a product that, that I would feel good giving them, that it's okay. I feel like a good parent, but also they're actually going to eat and enjoy it and that. So that was really the premise of, of where, how do I marry those two, two worlds? And also that's the macro trends in the environment. People for 10 years have been looking for cleaner ingredients, better for you. And so there's a demand for that that just wasn't there in the market. Very interesting. So did you get any grief from Pringle? Um, No. I mean, look, we fly under the ray. I mean, we'll, we'll, you know, we're, we're large enough. We'll do sort of nearly 30 million next year. But but in relative to Pringles, that's that's nothing. And they're doing their thing. And, and to some degree, that that's okay. There's the $2 billion market there. There's enough room for us just to chip away at those that-, that Chip away. Yeah, Chris away. The pun, yeah. um, those that want it and just provide for that need. So we're, we're sort of going where the consumers are going. Yeah, you're small enough at this stage- not even to be an aggravation such that they might try yeah. and say, well, you're trying to copy us. And, and we don't need Pringles to lose in order for us to win, if you know what I mean. Yeah, so yeah. There's, there's still enough people that, that are motivated by what we stand for or have not bought Pringles that come back into the category because of what we offer. Okay, so how do you market it? We do a lot around point of purchase. So we don't have all the money to do TV and all of those things like that and brand awareness. So we try so and you're not doing a Super Bowl ad? We're not doing a Super Bowl ad at the not moment, yet. no. Not yet. Uh, so it's... At right at point of purchase. So for us, it's really the basic. So packaging is the most important thing. That's what people see in the grocery store. You've got two seconds to sort of convince them. You know, that's why we use the Good Chris Company as our logo. As you said, we talk about no guilt. We have things they pick it up, read it. Hopefully that gets it into the basket. Then when they eat it, that comes and back end us. We do a lot around that. Uh, chips are impulse as well. Like you don't write Doritos on your shopping list, you write chips and then you get to the aisle and let it sort of tell you what what you want. So we spend a lot on price promotions, off locations, displays, any of those things like how, that. How do you get into the stores though? Like uh yeah, so it's not it's not easy. Like, um, particularly here in Australia, to be frank, with Coles and Woolies and Audi owning ninety percent of the market, it's it's tough. So we started off with IGAs and just just sort of some connections there, um, and sort of we use distributors, and then you sort of you, you prove it out in five stores, and you go to ten stores and twenty stores, and, and build from there. In terms of IGA, you're talking about 
Yeah, yep. And even 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 when we were in the US, it was the same. They just add a couple of zeros to the end of the the store numbers, but it's the same type of thing. You start small, prove it out, and build up from there. So when you say you use distributors, are we yep. talking about brokers? Both. So here, for example, in in the US, there's a company. Oh, sorry, in Australia, called Mecash, who's the big distributor yep. that sells out to all of the IGA. So we would go to the groups like Richie's or Drake's. Drake's is one, of, for example, is yep. one of the big IGA owners, one of Correct. the franchisees owners. And right. I know twelve or eight or whatever it is. Yep. So you go along, talk to them. That's right. Go talk to them as the buyer and say, "Hey, this is our product. Do you like it?" They say yes or no. If they say yes, then you go to Mecash and say, "Hey, I've got all these stores that want it," and they're essentially just box movers. They'll put it in and then deliver it out to the stores, etc. So where do you manufacture this stuff? So these are actually manufactured in Malaysia. So one of the key things and why there isn't a lot of canister chip brands out there is there's only a handful of people in the world that actually make them. And no one in Australia or the, or the US when you, I started you mean the, the business. Cans. Well, actually the, the product, the, the canned potato chip and everything like right. that. So the whole thing gets made so, in Malaysia. Yeah, correct. The, yep. the, the whole can. The whole, the chips, everything like that. Um, you know, as I said, Pringles has had such a dominant for the last 50 years that there's just not that many people out there that, that make this kind of product. Do, what, does Pringles make theirs in Malaysia? Or what? They do actually as yeah. well, yeah. 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 And other, other people, they have a couple of factories around the world. Uh, environmental. I quite like the canister. Um, maybe it's better. I don't know. Tell me about that. Yeah, we can. It's more recyclable. There's elements to it um, from from there. I think it's just a couple of reasons why. It makes the style of the chip is perfect every time. Unlike a bag chip, sort of you're going to get bits and pieces. Some are burnt, some are broken, some are big, some are large. This is generally perfect every time. And it just takes up less space. So you, you're going to the beach, you drop a canister in your bag or you have it there in the car cup holder. It's not like a massive bag of chips that take up a lot of room. So yeah. there's some functional benefits and it's a nostalgic kind of sort of product as well. Yeah, totally. It actually is quite nostalgic. As I said, I immediately think of hotels yeah. and I think of me being overseas with my kids four sons and uh, when they were young and uh, we'd have like three rooms and uh, the first thing I'd do is I'd go for the chips. Yeah. And what I used to do is I'd go, first thing I used to do is go and grab all the chips so they couldn't go for the chips yeah. because they'd eat these things before they ate the dinner yeah. and then they'd be full after, you know, and they'd devour everything, yeah. um, lemonade, Coca-Cola, chips. You know, you made a really good point about getting on the shelves. Once you're on the shelves though, I'll be looking along the aisles and I would look for something that's going to catch my eye. Yep. I haven't seen this mm-hmm. in the in Woolworths or Coles, but if I saw it, I probably would pick it up and have a look at it. And, and particularly, especially when we sell in the US in a lot of the natural stores like Whole Foods, for example, they won't have Pringles or anything. Why? Uh, because they have a list of like 100 banned ingredients, so no artificial colours, flavours, things like that. So they won't have any of those products right. in their stores. And Whole Foods, they're everywhere in America. Yeah, there's like 500 of them. They're a multi-billion dollar, you know, food chain for yeah, sure. Yeah, they're not. Yep. You see them in a few places here, but yep. they're not like the Whole Foods in America. Whole Foods in America are massive big correct. stores. Like, yep. Yeah, correct. It's a full shop, but you know that everything there is is in a relatively uh, better for you. So. In that instance, we were the only canister chip, so we did really stand out and right. allowed us to grow. So what's the process of convincing them to try yours? Do they test it? Uh, yes, so they, they, they do. They'll test it with their consumers um, and as well – they're a fairly large retailer. So same with like Woolworths and Coles. You usually need to come there with some some data to some show. Science. Yeah, here this is this is the numbers we've done. These are our, our turns or our velocity. We think we can produce this much dollars for you because essentially they're just selling shelf on their the space on their shelf. Yeah. So we in this space that we are, we can return this many dollars to you and it's better than someone else. And what happens if you if they don't sell it? If it doesn't sell? You're out. You get twelve months to, to prove it and, and then you're out. Does your stuff have a life? Is it like a shelf life? Yeah, shelf life. Yeah. So yeah, we have over 12 months on it, um, yeah. which, which works. Um, so that's good. So that's what allows us to bring it in from Malaysia. We bring 30 to 40 conta- shipping containers a month into the US and then we sell it all through through the country. Before you went to the US, yeah. what were you doing in terms of volume? Yeah, not a lot. 
So we were through, you know, we had a couple of hundred IGA stores. We were on some airlines. Actually, we were in Woolies for, for a little while in their health section. Um, so it was it was there, but it's just a very expensive gain that we sort of couldn't couldn't do a lot with um, versus what we were seeing once we started. Is that because the shelf, uh, sorry, the um, supermarket chains take too much or ask for too much for the use of their shelf? Part of that is yes, either directly for them or in brand support. So, yeah, we'll put you in, but we expect you to spend a million dollars in advertising right. and, and driving people to pick pick this product right. up. Right, so you okay, – yeah. that, that's part of the deal. Yeah, yeah. You want to put it on our shelf. Yep. Um, that's cool, but we also expect you to support that yeah. shelf. Yep. That bit of the shelf with your own dollars. Yeah, and there's 20 other people lined up behind you that are willing to sort of do that, so you either – do it or we'll move to the next one sort of thing. What about if you, when you go to the States, so is it the same type of deal? Not so much. And it's just there's like here you get you're either in Coles or your Woolies or there's not enough volume. In, in the US, there's 30, 40 Coles and Woolie equivalents. So if one says no, you just go to the next one until eventually one says yes and then you're able to build and, and move from, from there. So you get two bites of it here in Australia whilst there's more opportunity in the US. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Matt's moved his whole four years ago or so thereabouts, his whole family to Colorado and still there. That's a big haul. How did you put that to your family for a start? Yeah, well, and the other side, that that neither my wife or my kids had ever been overseas, so their first flight wow. was moving to to a place they'd never been. So um, I'm insanely grateful for their support of of me and of of the brand, and and that was huge. So I'm I'm very very grateful for that. It was a I mean, it was a quick decision. I think that helped as well. We sort of were a bit naive and didn't know what we were doing and let's do it. It's all of an adventure and didn't really fully appreciate. So I think that helped a little bit for there. But I think we just saw that you only get certain windows in your life when you can make those massive moves with with your family. My kids, my oldest at the time was, um, you know, eight or so. And so, you know, they weren't too old that they wanted to stay with all of their friends or anything so they could move. And we had this small window and, and we decided to, to take it. My my sort of philosophy is what's the worst that can happen? Like if it didn't work, we'll come back, that's fine. Or I'd rather take a chance and then, you know, that's fine. Or then regret that we had never done this decision and for the rest of our lives we wished we had we had taken this or what if sort of situation. And it worked out okay, obviously. It, it has, yeah. It's been good. What the fuck made you decide to get into the chip business? I mean, I, I get it, you know, yeah. like that you want to get compete with Pringles and no one else have ever done it and they've been around for 40 years or whatever and this is a yeah. huge market, got all that sort of empirical stuff. 
what are you, a cook or a chef or what, what's the deal? Like, why the fuck did you decide to yep. do this? So my background is is in food. I've always, so um, when I came out, I worked for a company. We were on the on the road, calling on stores, all those things. Eventually, I became as in a, distribution. A, just like yeah, so we would buy products when we would we would sell them into Coles, Woolies, IGA. So that's where I started. So off you my knew whole that career. shit. You, yeah. so that was my background. I ended up becoming like an owner of that company, and so sort of had experience and contacts in in that sort of industry. So I always knew I wanted to do my own brand. I, at the moment, I was bringing other people's brand in and learning from that really. Um, I was just looking for the right idea really and, and this is the, the one that I chose. But why, yeah, but why chips? I think because snacking is is an important thing. We talked earlier about how my kids are always asking for snacks. It's a huge part of our, our life. Um, I was on a gluten-free diet. I was trying to clean up my what I was eating and just realize this opportunity. As I said, there's a, a you know, $2 billion brand here and just no one is sort of competing and, and the opportunity for that was just, just too big to pass up. But were you sitting at home one day and uh, someone in the family produced a box of Pringles or yeah, it was it was pretty much that, you know, like you're looking at that and, and the kids keep asking for Pringles and you're like, oh, it's got all this stuff in it, but but I'm happy for you to have this kind of chip. It's candy, it's convenient, the canister is good, but there just needs to be something for me. And that, that's part of all of this is Pringles hasn't changed in, in 50 years. It's the same chip, but us as consumers are changing. We're looking for better for you. We're, we're moving on from that. And so for me, that was the opportunity there was if I can do the same type familiar form, just a better version of that, um, then that's something I think do is remember exciting. Um, it, it was like a lot of these things. It's sort of, you know, accumulation of days and things like that. But it started off, yeah, can like each thing is just a, a step. Can I make a product? Okay, will people want it? And then you just keep, before you know it, you find yourself over in the you US. You Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and and was your wife partner was and the mother of your children, yep. was uh, she part of that decision-making process? Definitely part of it. She, her support has been sort of helping me and the family and the kids and allowing me to sort of do this rather than working specifically in the business. But yeah, absolutely, it's a it's a family business in that sense. Definitely. And what did everybody say when you told me? What did your parents and all her parents and uncles and aunties and brothers and sisters all say when you said we're going? What are they? What, yeah. what was the push on you? I think they were they were obviously sad. Um, you know, it was sort of this idea of well, we'll go for a you know a year or two, see if we can make it work, and and sort of see how it goes. So I mean, I come from I've got five brothers and sisters my wife's got a lot of brothers and sisters so we are big on family and that is something that was probably the biggest challenge of moving somewhere where we just knew no one um but yeah we've created new friends and new communities over there but do they think you're crazy yes and what do you say to that I mean, I think they were pretty, they'd seen, like like I said, I'd started this business earlier and been doing it. They knew that sort of this was something I was passionate about and knew that that sort of, to some degree, I wasn't going to sort of stop. And, and I needed to, for myself, find out if I could do this. Like the the opportunity is there. It wasn't about, oh, I want to make heaps of money. It's just I can feel it within myself that this is a huge product. This is a, a people a product that people want. I've also sold a lot of products that people don't want, and you have to flog it and push it and do it. To some degree, this sells itself a little bit, and and it's a genuine demand. It's the first time I've felt that around a product, and I just had to follow it through. Do people tend to spend more on these types of items, or do they say, "Hey, I'm not going to buy, be buying any more chips um, because you know we've got bigger mortgage repayments, or whatever the case may be, rent yeah. higher, whatever it is, cost of living has just gone up." What happens? Yeah, I'm a believer in like the the lipstick index and the things that people sort of purchase more luxuries and, and permissible indulgence through those periods. So a $3.50 canister of chips is not going to sort of, you know, make you default on your mortgage payment or things like that. So I see that still continuing. I mean, ultimately, though, we have massive organic growth behind us. So we grow between 30 to 50% every year just 
just in just people finding us, trying us, coming back and buying us. So sure, if that comes off 5% or something like that, it's still huge headwind that, sorry, still um, momentum that we've got going there. Um, and there's still millions of people we haven't touched or found out about our product and all of that. So I think there's still a lot of upside regardless of the macro environment. And do you see yourself raising money? Well, we've, we've had to raise money. So part of moving to the US was, was part of that as well. Um, so it's not only just the the market opportunity, but even just the availability of funds and VCs and things is just a lot more established in the US. So we've raised um, over $14, 15000000 million now to do what we're doing and, and to continue to keep growing. So how many, how many rounds? Uh, in an A round. So we're about to do a B round, sort of closing that up, which right. will be some more, but that's how it was our A round. Just take me through that. Like yeah. how, how do you go about doing that in the States? You're in Colorado, so yep. where, who do you talk to? Yeah, and it's quite the natural products industry that, that we're in and, and that is quite an established industry. So like when I started this uh, in the US, I went to a trade show to show my products. There's 4,000 exhibitors, 40,000 people come through that show. So there's a real defined industry there. And within that, there's a good VC network. Um, I have contacts in there and, and we've established those over the years and we're able to sort of reach out and, and do that. Our numbers are good. Our you know, economics are good. So we've been able to raise funds. You know, nothing's easy, but it, but relatively easy. So, But, but are, you, are we talking about raising money from the people in um San Francisco, like your top, your, your normal tech investors, or where, where do these people come from? Yeah, th- there's a specific uh, industry of of uh, VCs that invest in consumer products, and right. part of that is is food. So th- there's a little bit they borrow from the tech world around multiples of um, revenue and focusing on revenue and growth, and then selling off to a strategic from from there, like a larger corporation, food corporation, but that specialise in in food and consumer products. When you talk to these investors mm-hmm. in your round A. Do they say to you, hey, Matt, we don't want to be your partner forever. Um, we would like to know what are the liquidity events that mm-hmm. you would consider? But how do you respond to that? Because you just say, yeah, well, look, I'm happy to list it, sell it, part sell it, whatever. It's Yeah, it's definitely something you have to consider right from the start because if, if you start raising money, then then that's it. You're on, you're on that track. You have to return money to your shareholders. They're not investing in me because they like me. It, it's a business. Yeah. So. There are you don't have to raise money. You can go down the path of just sort of growing it slowly and all that. And there's that's nothing wrong. For for me, I knew I had a good product. It has a lot of money to do it, and I wanted to get it out there as quickly as possible before someone copied me or something like that. So we wanted to go that high growth. So you have to sort of answer that within yourself. Is this what you want? Are you going to grow and sell this at some time? This isn't something I'm passed down to my girls. So that's fine. So when you're on that. That's it. You're sort of right at some point. Now, coming from my background in Australia where it's not as much in VC and that, I still have sort of this mixture of both where this isn't a a pump and dump where I'm trying to build it up and flip it off real quickly. I'm building this as if it is a 50, 30-year company, but in the back of my mind, I know at some point we have to sell and return liquidity to to our shareholders. Yeah, because shareholders, well, these types of investors anyway, they're, they're happy to be patient. Um, but they don't. They usually have a liquidity period somewhere between five and ten years, Correct. and they say in your agreement with them, in the shareholders' agreement, that you they will make you sign with him. Um, uh, these are the liquidity events. They don't say you have to give us the money back, but they say there's going to be a liquidity event in year five, for argument's sake. At which point you all sit down mm-hmm. and make a call on what you're going to do. Yep. And uh, but because they, they have to turn these things over, yep. they have to show a profit. Otherwise, they can't invest more money. They can't attract more investors into the fund, which allows them to invest in more businesses, which allows them in turn to make their own money because they yep. make money by charging a fee for the amount of money that they raise and and invest. And invest, yeah. Um, and that's that's their model, their business model. So the moment you are, let's call it, in bed with these guys, 
you have to accept that at some stage you're going to have you're going to be confronted with this challenge of man this is my baby <laughs> i invented it blood sweat and tears but i might have to let it go I might as well sell it if there's a trade buy. And by the way, hopefully there's a fucking huge profit in it for you. <laughs> have you come to terms with that? I have, yep, because we needed the, essentially we needed the money and this is the way that we wanted to go. Um, we've been fortunate that so, – so within that as well, you can choose who your investors are. So there's yeah. varying slide of, of scales. So we've been very fortunate. We have fantastic investors that understand what we're doing, that are patient. There's no – you know, to, to your point, we don't have agreements that say we have to sell in five years. Or There's expectations, but there's there's nothing sort of written in there and they trust me to, to grow this and to do the right thing. So it's a good balance there. Um, but, yeah, at, at the end of the day, um, you know, this is, this is what we needed to do to make this business successful. And when you present – your business to them, your pitch to these guys. How do you sort of push the envelope about, uh, look, I'd like to come pitch to you guys and present, or do they say, or do they there for the purpose of saying, look, Matt, I'd like you to come pitch to us? How does it work? Yeah, it's a bit of both. So, I mean, part of it is everyone told me, Matt, um, start those connections and those conversations before you need the money. So start, you know, here's the people, these are the VCs, start connecting with them, chatting to them, sharing your story, updating them every couple of months so that when you do need the money, you've already got a list of people that are familiar and, and from there. And that's been really actually great advice um, yep. f- for me from there. So I've made a conscious effort to, especially being the new guy coming in there, is to make sure I make all those contacts, meet those people, share the good news stories so that, that it's made that easier. When you thought I need, I don't know, 10 million, whatever it is you mm-hmm. need to raise to expand the business, across, you know, and that's just expansion money, um, expansion capital. Um, did you reach out to them or, did, or they said, listen, Matt, we're looking at investing in various companies. Would you like to pitch them? I mean, how does it work? Yeah, it, it literally is a, a bit of those both. So there's, yeah, you ask around who are the VCs, you make good connections with other founders and things like that to learn who they are. You ask for introductions, but equally as well, they're walking the halls of, of these trade shows. To, to your point, they get paid in the money that they invest. invest. They want to invest. In fact, a lot of them are sitting on all money that they they want to invest and they haven't been able and to. And it's a problem too. Yeah. If they don't invest, they get what they call negative carry and actually that affects the returns that they give to investors, which means investors start to redeem or ask for their money back mm-hmm. potentially or at least uh, investors don't leave the investment in there beyond the termination period. So that's a problem for them. They have to invest and they have to give returns to consumers or their investors, I should say. Um, so if you understand their game, um, then you work out how to game the game, so to speak. Yeah. You've got to be able to game it a little bit. I um, mean, and, you know, the, these are international trade shows. They're mm-hmm. really important. Yep. The, these buying a kiosk or uh, getting a position. Yep. So when you went to the very first called food show, yep. um, it's probably one of these massive ones America has um, because of everything big. Um, how did you work out where your kiosk was going to be situated yeah, so it was to some degree. I didn't get a choice. So once again, the new guy in the block just gets what they're given. So well, what you can afford? Yeah, exactly. So it was the same thing. What's the worst that can happen? It'll cost me ten grand. I'll, I'll buy a table. I'll fly over there. I'll we wrapped all of the products with you know US label. I just thought I'll put it on the table. One. So I wasn't sure, would people like the taste of our product? Is taste different? And then the positioning and all of those things. So I thought the best way to get consumer feedback is to sample it. But if I do it at a trade show, I can get, you know, cons- like buyers and all of that. So we just put it on the table and people would sort of walk past and then stop and come back oh, and say, yeah, well, is that, is, that what, is that what I think it is? A good, a, a, you know, healthy Pringle or whatever. And then as soon as they ate it, they they loved it. And so after the first two hours, I knew 
there was a demand for this product, whether I could do it or bring it to life or all those things was yet to be worked out. But I just knew there was there was demand based on the feedback. Yeah, so it was sort of pretty much like a research exercise yeah. for you. Um, it, it does this thing sell? Yeah. Or will it sell? Yep. Do people and, want it? Um, in terms of positioning yourself, so you got your product and yep. you, you know where to make your product, you know how to wrap your product and present it, which I think is great. How do you work out your pricing? Yeah, so we're a premium product. So that's one thing. So we never, we always are conscious to say we're not competing against Pringles. We're not trying to price against Pringles. Pringles in the US is like $2. That's fine. If you're a Pringles consumer, go for your life. Where we are consumers are uh, parents that are buying the bag of better for you kettle potato chips or the bag of better for you chips. So what are they priced at? And, and sort of, you know, even though they're in a bag, they're a five ounce sort of product, we're a five ounce canister. So priced in within that. So it didn't matter across any of those, we would be similar priced. Correct. Yep. So working backwards, they're selling 10 times the volume you're selling. Mm-hmm. Therefore, they're producing much cheaper than you're producing yep. because volume based. <laughs> How do you sort of deal with your margin or is that the reason why you raise money is to manage your margin? Yeah, look, we're, some people is yes. Like so up until probably two years ago, the focus very much has been don't worry about bottom line, just grow, everything goes into that, margin's fine, you know, from, from there. Lose money. Lose money, grow. Once again, going back to my point, I didn't always feel comfortable with that. So I've always had good unit economics. We hired a consultant at the time once we knew that that um, it was a good opportunity to run through, okay, this is the margin that Whole Foods wants. This is the margin the distributor wants. This is how much promotions. And we spent a lot of time, what's called on price architecture, to make sure that we would still have a good margin at the end of the day. Um, and that's proved out well because now, you know, four years later on, all the investors are saying, no, we want you to grow, but you need to have profit. It's not all about just growth. There needs to be sustainability here, and which we're able to do. So, and I think that's an important point. I just want to explore that a little bit. So, maybe three, four years ago, investors, VC, venture capitalists, just growth. Mm-hmm. Give me market share. Yep. But there has been a shift. Yeah. Because back a couple of years ago, if they put their money on, if the investors who went into the funds or the VC funds that invest in you, those investors, um, if they put the money in the bank, they get nothing. Yep. So they're just happy to be involved in something that's growing because they still get nothing, still get no return. Yeah. The world's changed. Um, interest rates now, you put your money in the bank, you're going to get 4%, 4.5% perhaps. No risk, zero risk because you're with the bank. Yep. Either here or in Australia, uh, in the US, doesn't make much difference. So the appetite of investors or the VCs who are dealing with investors is changed. They're looking for as you said, sustainability, some profit at some stage and maybe a dividend, something, some mm-hmm. something pay back to me, a return. Otherwise, I might just leave money in the bank and take no risk. Is how how did you learn about that? I mean, and where did you first get that sense or was that just because you kept talking to these these funds? Part of it was was that uh, like and you and they, they'll start telling you those things as well and and you you know like we need profit, we need these things and it is about you know, dividends back, but also it's just about sustainability. Like if you just keep burning money, you need yeah. to keep raising money. Yeah, and stop keep coming back to me in the market because you keep deluding me. Yeah, exactly. If I don't participate. And, and we've seen it particularly in the last 12 months is that VC tap is getting turned off, you know, so there isn't the money. You can't just keep coming back to the market and and, and getting that, that money. And so I – Personally, I mean, I'm fine with VC and all that, and that as we talked about. But doesn't mean that I want to just keep selling off chunks of my company because that's what raising money is. Is I'm selling off parts, not for me, but for the business. And so I figured if I can get to 
profitability as quickly as possible, then I don't, I have got some sustainability there. I can keep going and I don't have to raise if I don't, you know, need to. That's not an easy thing to do. I think there are, there are some economies to scale. It's not as much as we often think. Like we often think, I think it's one of the issues founders do is, oh, with scale, I'll reach profitability. Inevitably, yes, you can get slight savings on your, you know, your manufacturing costs, but then there's other areas that go up from there. So for us, it's been about we've used the the VC money or the funds to to forward invest in employees and and marketing and those sort of things like that. In so it's your overheads as opposed correct. to your gross margins. So we need a certain amount. Like I said, we do we'll do over twenty five million this year. That gives us enough to cover off our fixed costs and things like that from from there. So it's about having the right margins at the start, gross margins to cover off your fixed costs once you meet. A yeah, your gross margin in in other words, what I sell this for versus what it cost me to produce correct. it. But what you're also saying, though, is there's all these other costs, yep. overheads, rents, staff, yep. promotional yep. marketing money, blah, blah, blah. And uh, you can sort of work out at what point you don't need to spend more on that and that that particular overhead can only have to marginally increase to be able to deal with your massive growth. But you do have to spend that money up front. Correct. Yeah. And you have to as well with, with these kind of businesses, cash flow is so important. Like I have to front three, $4 million to buy enough product to be able to sell that. And so yeah. that's the other major concern is margin is one and then cash is, is insane. Do you bring a, a CFO in or how do you do this stuff? You learn a lot. That's definitely one. Um, but yeah, we're at the point where we now have a VP or a CFO of, of um, finance and that's a big part of what we do. It's part of what we raise the money for. Then you look at external non-dilutive things. So what can we get in debt? What can we get in asset back loans? How can we get other forms of money just, just to keep that cash flow going? Do the seasons affect like they would here in Australia? Like if you're trying to raise money here in Australia in December, it's pretty hard. Mm-hmm. In the US, do they do the season affect you? Yes. Well, this round was supposed to be closed, you know, a month ago. So yeah, through yeah. Christmas and December, all those things things slow down a bit for sure. And have you been experiencing any um, resistance given you know the US economy state of affairs that we keep hearing about here in Australia? We've we've been really fortunate that that we've been okay, but almost on a weekly basis, I'm hearing of other brands shutting down or other brands can't find money or so it definitely is affecting that tap, as I said, has been turned off. And, you know, to your point earlier, it takes a while to turn these ships around. If your focus has just been on growth, 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 and then suddenly someone says, no, you need to be profitable now, you can't do that overnight. And a lot of these people are getting stuck in the middle where they haven't had enough time to turn it around and they can't get the funds they need. So it, I think it's going to be tough for the next couple of months. There's an interesting thing you said earlier on, Matt, too, and very intuitive, and it's something that Kerry Packer told me back in 2001. If you need the money, you won't be able to raise it. Yeah. And uh, you've always got to be ready to raise, effectively, ready to raise. Yep. In other words, don't wait until you need it. And uh, don't, don't go, oh, well, I'll, look, I'll fix all that shit down the track. I'll make sure I get all my books right and my finance right and blah, blah, blah. When I need to raise the money, I'll, I'll sort it then. Because you've got to have it all ready now and you've got to be talking to people now and pitching all the time. Because you've got to take the money when the supply is there. Yeah. And more than likely the thing that causes you to need the money is the same thing that's going to cause the supply to drop off. And yeah. and, and, and carriers always say it doesn't matter whether or not – because I know a lot of people who, who've tried to raise money, particularly in my industry. Um, at the time they think the, the valuation is will be the highest. In other words, I've got better sales. But normally but nine times a ten you don't control the uh, – the economics. You don't control what happens outside you. You don't control the, the the market changes. And whilst you're waiting to get to give away less because you know your valuation is higher, um, you run the risk 
of at that time you can't raise money at all, yeah. which means all of a sudden your business becomes far less valuable because you don't have a dough or you close the doors on yeah. the two. Where did you find that out? Where did you work that out? Well, I think How? it's – for me it's always been around what's what's best for the business, not not what's best for valuations, what's best for me. What, and there's a balance in that because you don't want to get ripped off. But at the end of the day, we need this money to grow, whether your valuation is $20 million or $30 million. Really, in the scheme of things, that that uh, that half a percent or a quarter of a percent doesn't make that much difference down the line with extra dilution and things. So it's it's for me, it's been well, about, relative to the risk. Co- that's correct. For sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I've always found people that get obsessed with valuation, it usually ends up buying them in the in the backside yeah. later on. Like there's a balance, but I think that's not the most important thing. Or they get the best valuation, but they get stuck with a partner that you know has a lot more demanding terms and all those things like that. So for me, it's find the right people. Um, and then you know the the valuation is secondary to that. It's very interesting you say that, and it's very I I consider it to be quite intuitive anyway. Um, I always get asked, you know, what are we going to do by various shareholders that I had in my wizard business? When are we going to do it? Why don't we do this? Why don't we do that? And I always used to say to the shareholders, one of which was Kerry Packer, but there were two others. I'm going to make the decision that's in the best interest of the company. Because I take the view as whatever is in the best interest of the company, the business, is in the best interest of all the shareholders. Yeah. I can't look at any one particular shareholder, including myself, um, any one particular shareholder's agenda, because that'll always make the I'll always make the wrong decision. I won't make I'm going to make someone unhappy. So if I just look at what's best for the business, and what's best for the business is in your case is where I get the capital, the patient capital, how much patient capital I need to make this business grow. So what type of business do I need to have to present to potential investors to make this business grow? And it's a business that is sustainable in terms of margin and sales and everything yep. else. That I think that's a I, – I, I think your answer is perfect. It's a really good answer and particularly at the moment because we are experiencing a lot of volatility. Everybody just thinks, oh, fuck, money is easy to get. You know, we go to the US, raise money. That's bullshit. Yeah. That is just total fucking ass up. That's not the way it works. In fact, they are some of the most um, astute investors in the world, particularly when it comes to specialised areas like mm-hmm. food in your area. They know their shit or technology. They know their stuff. If they like it, you're up. If they don't like it, you've got no chance. And they all talk. Yes, yeah. They all know each other. Yeah. And uh, it's literally like this. I mean, I've been through it. You're there to make your pitch and there's five others waiting outside in the waiting room. Well, not literally, but like close to it. They, you know, and because I used to do this with um, bond products, um, mortgage bond products, I would go to the US every six weeks to raise not capital, well, lending capital, cap- capital's lend, okay, not investor capital, not shareholding capital, capital, and I would raise a billion US a time, and um, every six weeks, and I would be, Rams would be there in front of me. They would just did their uh, pitch, um, and then uh, St George might be standing outside. Outside, I'd see them in the – they'd be staying in the same hotel because yeah. we all go through the same travel agencies and we all book the same bloody joints. And I'd see the guy from St. George or the girl from St. George and I'd say, oh, what are you guys? Oh, we're here raise, raising money. What day are you on? <laughs> I'm on Wednesday. Shit, I'm on Tuesday. Uh, what time are you on? I'm on four. You're at nine. Uh, you know, like it's, it's, it is that way. It's, that's the way it is. Yeah. And they all know – and you can't bullshit your way through these things. You can't say the Australian market's this. Because they're going to get a different point of view from the Rams True. guy, or going to get a different point of view from the St George person. And in those days, we'd have Commonwealth Bank lined up, Westpac lined up, St George lined up. Uh, you know, Rams, as I said earlier on, um, they'd all be lining up because they're all tapping the same markets. We're all tapping the same investors. 
Is that the, has it been your experience? Definitely. The industry is small. As I said, there's specialised people in the industry. They, they all know each other. They all know this one for this multiple or this one for this multiple. What numbers are we seeing? So, yeah, you might be able to get it once, but you're never going to get it again. I mean, it's the same with retail. I could sell it to a retailer, but if it doesn't go off the shelf, I never get another yeah, sale yeah, again. Yeah. You're out. You're out yeah. your ass. Matt, I always give everyone an opportunity to ask me a question. I don't know if you've got one for me, but if you've got one, you want to fire away. Yeah, I do. I think, you know, you hear the conventional wisdom sort of through is, is you know, brands that continue to spend on on marketing and invest through recessions do better than brands that that, that pull back. And it was sort of the, the balance of that. I was wondering, do you have any tactical advice around that or, or sort of what you've seen in your experience through that rather than just sort of the, the mantra? What does that mean for you? Yeah, I, I yeah, that's a good question. Um, should I spend during tough times or should I, am I better spending during good times? I don't like spending... I, I, I believe in spending during tough times, but I don't believe in overspending. Right. So I'm very conservative about how much money I spend. I don't take the view I'll spend now, invest for the future, because I, I don't know when the future is going to come, yeah. and I don't know what's what what the future is going to look like when it does come. So if if I'm I'm always trying to protect protect my cash flow and my retained earnings and my cash, so I will spend very conservatively during bad times. And then I'll, what I, tr- I tend to do then is I wait for the bad times to start to peter out. So, you know, in Australia at least, um, downtimes, let's call it, I don't want to say recessions, just downtimes, GDP downtimes when, you know, we don't grow that much as a country and, you know, maybe an unemployment starts to rise. Generally speaking, only lasts between 9 and 15 months historically in Australia. Good times last, you know, 10, 12 years period. Right. So I'm trying to pick, like right now, I've pulled my advertising for my Olympic Grow business. I've spent what I need to spend for November uh, for in November for the twenty two year. I'm not booking any time, any dollar time on television or anywhere like that for twenty twenty three at this stage. What I will do though is, as soon as I start to think we're at the end of the cycle, the tough cycle, I'll start investing then. So if the tough cycle is going to finish, say in my mind, in November next year, that's nine months. Yep nine-month down period, I'll start investing in the spring period, So, I'll, which my business mortgages, so I'll start investing in the spring period. So I'll start investing in August on TV advertising. So I'll kick up my advertising, just the normal spends. I won't yep. go hard. Um, I'll just go for normal spends. Then what I'll do is if, if I'm correct and we are at the end of the cycle, we're coming into the new cycle, the good cycle, where people want to buy property and borrow money, I'll kick up my spending quite significantly but when the good period comes, I just let it happen. Right. I, I've, I don't spend a lot of dough then. Yep. I, just, I just maintain. That's my process, maintenance. Just spend enough to maintain my presence, social, digital, TV, radio, whatever, um, PR. So I don't spend like a madman during really good times. Um, I don't overspend during really bad times but I try to pick the cycles and I pick the cycles not because I'm some sort of expert on these things, but I pick the cycles um, when based on Australian um, economic evidence, what's happened. It's easier to pick the end of a bad cycle than it is to pick the beginning of a bad cycle. So I didn't pick that this year. I'd already committed the beginning of this year to spend quite a bit bit of money on television, for example, which I did. Um, And then they started raising rates and I, I sort of got caught out a bit. So, you know, I'm, I've stopped my spending right in the middle of the bad cycle, which ordinarily I wouldn't, I don't like to have have happened. But I, I can, you can never really pick a, 
at the commencement of a bad cycle. But you again can get quite a good uh, feeling when the end of the bad cycle is occurring. Mm-hmm. And that's how I manage my um, spending. I try to, you know, bottom line is it's an accounting function, but I try to match expenses with revenues. Right. I'm always trying to ex- match the revenues and the expenses, like by period mm-hmm. I'm talking about. Yeah. The amount of money I spend is not equal to the amount of money I earn, but I'm trying to do it by period, match period matching of expense versus revenue from that expense. Yep. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. No, I appreciate it. That's a good answer. Thank you. Well, Matt, thanks very much. I, I reckon these chips are really bloody uh, – I actually fantastic. I love the canister. I love the the playfulness of it. I like the fact that you've gone, gone all out and you've put photographs of your family and you've identified yourself you t- you, and you're telling me you're Aussie by, straight up from the top. Aussie stuff sells. And uh, and I, I like the, the, the thought of it. I mean it's still snack food, fast food, whatever, but it's better for you than the other shit. So good luck to you, mate. Thank you very much. I've seen Aussie do well in overseas. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for listening to The Mentor. Audio and production is by Jess Morley. And production assistants, Jonathan Leondis. 